Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, trouble for the speaker. It should not be seen as partisan to recognize a colleague's departure. Greg Fergus apologizes for taking part in a partisan tribute to an Ontario Liberal. Should he resign? Should he be investigated? Coming up, we'll speak with former Common Speaker and current Conservative House Leader Andrew Scheer. Also... Canada committing to reducing methane emissions by at least 75% by 2030 is the most ambitious goal in the world right now. Canada's Environment Minister unveils new draft regulations targeting methane emissions, but is Ottawa intruding on provincial jurisdiction? We'll speak with Saskatchewan's Minister of Justice. And... Allegations of rape and sexual harassment within Canada's spy agency will get reaction from a former CSIS officer who had her own experience of sexism and harassment. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The Federal Environment Minister unveiled new limits to methane emissions today. Contained in a draft proposal that was unveiled at COP28, it would cut emission levels by at least 75% by 2030. Take a listen to what we heard from Stephen Guilbeault today. 15 uh, Canadian oil companies have committed to be near zero methane emissions by, by 2030. They, they were joined by another 50 international companies, including BP, Shell, Tatal, Aramco. So I, I think we're seeing here the, the beginning of a global movement towards almost eliminating uh, methane emission from the oil and gas sector. And to my knowledge, um, Canada committing to reducing methane emissions by at least 75% by 2030 is the most ambitious goal in the world right now. Stephen Guilbeault. Now, he also says that by cutting methane emissions, it is one of the fastest ways to address climate change. And for some reaction, we're now joined by the Minister of Justice for Saskatchewan, Bronwyn Eyre. Minister, good to see you again. Thank you for taking the time. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Listen, I want to begin with the equivalency agreement that Saskatchewan has with Ottawa, because uh, for people who don't know, that does allow provincial methane regulations to have precedence over federal uh, regulations if it achieves the same goal. So I'm wondering how these draft regulations would affect that agreement. Well, I think that's um, a major problem. And, And keep in mind, we have, as you say, an equivalency agreement with the federal government on methane. It was hard negotiated for. It took Um, some two years to to get to an agreement in uh, the fall of 2020. And basically, the equivalency agreement was the federal government accepting Saskatchewan's Methane Action Plan, or MAP, um, whose goals were 40 to 45% reduction in methane emissions from 2015 levels by 2025. And we've already achieved that. So in, in December 2021, um, Minister Gilbo, uh, not yet Environment Minister Gilbo, uh, praised us and publicly congratulated Saskatchewan on Twitter for having uh, reduced methane emissions by 50%. And that was all on our own. That was not um, with the, the help of the federal government. So we have uh, honoured the agreement, an agreement that, as you say, we had with the federal government. And, and very shortly after that, um, 
announcement by Minister Bilbo, the goalposts started to change. And the symbol, the signal started to uh, to go out around, oh, it was going to be 60 or it was going to be 75. And of course, that's what we are seeing now being you know, formalized today. But the point is that we have an agreement in place. It expires next year. And so this is, this is more of that changing of goalposts, which we see so often, and, and really doesn't send a very positive signal when um, there's talk about how collaboration is important between the federal government and the provinces when midway through an agreement, uh, the, the, the rules have changed. We saw it coming, but uh, we're disappointed to, to see it formalized today. So what is, excuse me, what is the practical impact of that then? Because here you have an announcement uh, out of COP28, you're, ex you're already working on one set of principles. So what's your concern about the impact that would have on industry? Well, the first thing is uncertainty. Um, and it, it just is another um, impact that the sector has to absorb in terms of not being sure what the framework is, not being sure what the regulations are going to be. And, and how many times have we seen that? The, the, the point of the equivalency agreement was to provide some certainty. Uh, industry stakeholders were in favor of it. They've obviously done a, a good job with the province in, in reducing emissions. That was above what we had even said would be in the equivalency agreement at the 40 to 45%. 50% reductions we saw by 2021. So I think the, the, the real concern is that this is um, a cap by default, uh, a production cap by default. And, and we've seen very cautious language by the, the federal minister around honoring provincial jurisdiction um, and how you know that is something that that needs to be uh, respected. But the, but the point is, this actually violates uh, provincial jurisdiction uh, under the constitution. And 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 keep in mind that in the carbon tax carbon tax case, the Supreme Court found that the the pricing stringency was a very very narrow and specific thing. Um, in terms of emissions pricing, and it was indicated at that at that point by the um, by the court that the federal government would have to be very very cautious about entering into regulations of specific industries, uh, such as we're seeing uh, with this. So this is not carte blanche. It never was carte blanche to uh, for the federal government to weigh into industry-specific regulations, and that's what we're seeing. It would be the same as if uh, the federal government would start to target the manufacturing sector specifically, or the transportation sector, or the auto sector. That's what we're seeing with this, and the Supreme Court never indicated that that would be acceptable going forward. And, uh, and, and that's, a very, that's a very grave concern, obviously, to us as a province. Mm -hmm. uh, the judicial issue around it. But I do want to go back on this idea that, in effect, it's an, an emissions cap. Because would it be because Stephen Gibbo makes this argument that methane emissions capture would actually be low cost for oil companies, and that could then be sold as another form of energy. Given that assessment, is it really a cap? Well, there are, there are real uh, costs attached with this um, in terms of equipment, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of tying in of lines, in terms of accommodating, you know, different geology uh, between, for example, Alberta and Saskatchewan, what applies there doesn't necessarily apply to Saskatchewan. There are, there are costs involved 
absolutely. And the effort, though, has been very good faith to this point. I think part of it is constantly changing the rules and increasing the percentage. Um, and, and I think that um, it, it's very important to point out that the um, data collection and data imposition by the federal government, and this is something that we have raised a number of times uh, with counterparts federally, is, is very close smoke and mirrors. That we're never sure what data they are um, requesting, what models they are imposing. And, and so one of the things that we have said throughout this process of equivalency and, and into negotiating a new equivalency agreement is we've got to be very, very transparent as collaborative partners about the data. We've been an open book, you must be as well. And I think that that's part of the uncertainty that comes about as a result of this, that um, it's very prescriptive. The federal government is starting to talk about specific equipment, audits, and so on. This is provincial uh, jurisdiction. And I think that if you're the, if the industry right now, uh, you're faced with, again, more uncertainty around, you know, TBD frameworks, which of course have an impact on, on cost. And, and in uncertainty, production is affected, period. So I have less than a minute here, but I do have to ask, where would you like this to go then? Again, these are just draft regulations, not yet finalized. Where does this go from here? Well, I mean, in, in Saskatchewan, we, we have brought out the Saskatchewan First Act, which, you know, as you will know, entrenches in, in our provincial constitution, our, our jurisdictional authority under Section 92A of the Constitution over natural resources and power generation. And one of the things that flows from the Saskatchewan First Act is, is an economic assessment tribunal. And we announced the composition of that last week, which really looks at the harm, the dollar figure harm, and quantifies that um, for, for the people of the province and, and, and for the country. And, and so identifies the impact on Saskatchewan of federal policies. And, and this would be, I, I think, a, a prime example of what could be harmful, certainly as constitutional overreach. But I think that, that you know, we'll have to think very hard about referring this to uh, the tribunal um, for assessment in terms of cost and, and in terms of really specifying impact on the sector. It's easy to say that, that cost is of no matter, but of course we never see any costing from the federal government. And, and so I, I think that is really the problem and where there is goodwill that has been shown and good faith that has been shown through collaboration. Uh, this would be another example of a unilateral announcement with no collaboration over uh, a sector which is has shown very good stewardship in terms of, of methane emissions. And you know there are there are studies which show that if if every energy producing nation on earth extracted and regulated mm -hmm. uh, their oil and gas the way we do here in Saskatchewan global greenhouse gas emissions from the energy sectors would would instantly fall by 25 percent and that a lot of that work has been around methane we have been good at it we have reduced it and there is no need to impose more uh, unilateral uh, percentage hikes just just for kicks minister bronwyn air always appreciate the time thank you for this this evening thank you very much 
To the House of Commons now, where Speaker Greg Fergus issued an apology this morning, saying sorry for taping a congratulatory message to provincial politician John Fraser, who had just served as Ontario's interim Liberal leader. It is an act that some opposition MPs say undermined the Speaker's air of impartiality. Here is the apology that we heard today from Greg Fergus. It should not be seen as partisan to recognize a colleague's departure. It is an act of friendship and respect. That said, I recognize how this may have been misinterpreted. I would like to apologize and reassure members that this kind of event will not happen again. Well, for his thoughts on the Speaker's apology, we're now joined by the Conservative House Leader, Andrew Scheer. He himself, of course, a former common speaker as well. Mr. Scheer, good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Listen, I think it might be worthwhile here to, to begin with why you think it is problematic for a speaker to congratulate essentially a longtime friend on their retirement. Mm. Well, let's keep in mind that it was a videotaped address at a, that was played at a liberal convention. So it wasn't just uh, at a small gathering of friends, it was played uh, in front of uh, uh, perhaps hundreds of, of liberal partisan uh, volunteers and activists. Uh, it wasn't just a, a congratulatory message, it was uh, a message that was full of reminiscing about uh, working in Liberal Party politics, including on the campaign of uh, former Liberal Premier of Ontario, Delta McGuinty. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, and, and by the way, we, we, we don't have any proof that that is how the invitation was presented to the Speaker. And uh, so when we saw the Speaker in his official robes, in his official office, delivering partisan remarks at a partisan activity at a convention, this just uh, set off all kinds of alarm bells. And the, the, the disappointing thing is that Mr. Fergus didn't think about those things before he decided to participate in the Liberal Convention. Okay, but you know, but to hear it from Mr. Fergus, and, and you know this, he, he thought it would be a private message, not one that would be shared at a Liberal event as it was. Doesn't that change a bit of the, 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 the calculus around this then? No, I mean, he, he knew that the video was going to be played somewhere. Um, we, we, you know, at this point, all we have is his own uh, statement on that. We, we don't have anything else to, uh, to corroborate that or to substantiate uh, his assertion. And again, you know, he, he didn't just, he wasn't just wearing a sweater in, a, uh, in, in his own living room or in his, uh, in his own kitchen. He was, uh, he was in his parliamentary office, in his speaker's office. And that has a very uh, symbolic uh, importance. Uh, the, the office that he holds, the office that he occupies when he's working, the, the robes he wears are all symbols of a very important part of our parliamentary institution. That part the speaker's part only works if members have trust that he is he or she is nonpartisan and impartial and the reason for that is because we must accept the speaker's rulings even if we disagree with them even if we uh, believe that there's an, uh, an, an error been made in, in arriving at a decision uh, we ha we trust the speaker to be nonpartisan and impartial and in return uh, we we accept his rulings that, that only works if the speaker goes above and beyond avoiding any uh, involvement with partisan 
activities at all. That didn't happen this weekend. So now there are important decisions before the, the House, one on the government's ability to bring in their budget bill. Uh, we've had numbers, uh, a number of questions of privilege and points of order raised in the, in the last few days. And, and for members of any party to be able to accept the ruling, if it happens to go against them, it's going to be all the more difficult knowing that the Speaker just participated in a very partisan activity this weekend. Okay, I, I hear that. But, you know, I'm wondering if, there needs, if there's a distinction here, because your party is now calling for his resignation. Uh, the Bloc wants his resignation. The NDP, a uh, bit of a milder tone. They want this uh, matter to be referred. But, you know, ultimately we're dealing with a, a speaker who was elected in a Quebec riding, issuing a congratulations to someone that was part of the Ontario Liberal Party, not the federal Liberal Party. Is there no leeway on that? Well, I think it makes it all the more confusing as to why the speaker decided to do this. You know, if if, if it was that he he had this long-standing, uh, if it was in his own uh, own province, or if he decided to do it as a private individual, you know, he he might have a different case to make to the house. But if we try to think of some some other analogies of other institutions that depend on impartiality. If we think about an, NF, uh, an NHL referee, can you imagine what would happen if, uh, uh, if an NHL referee was videoed uh, giving a pep talk uh, in the dressing room of the Toronto Maple Leafs, wearing his referee's outfit? Uh, how do you think Montreal Canadian fans or Ottawa Senators fans would react to that? I, I would put it to you that that NHL referee would likely not referee another game because the players need to be sure that when a penalty is handed out or when a, when a goal is disallowed that the, uh, the referee is only looking at the rules and only looking at what actually happened. Uh, if a referee breaks that trust or, or, or causes grave doubts about the impartiality, then the best thing that can be done to preserve the integrity uh, is, is for that person to, to step aside. And that's why we're, what we're saying, you know, Mr. Fergus comes from a very partisan background. He didn't, uh, he didn't come into the speaker chair through other avenues that, that other MPs have done when they serve some time as a deputy speaker or as a committee chair, and they kind of, you know, uh, adopt a bit more of a non-partisan presence in the chamber for a number of years. He was the former president of the Liberal Party. He was the Prime Minister's personal parliamentary secretary in, in the House. One of his early interventions in the chamber was defending Justin Trudeau, and Justin Trudeau elbowed a, a female member of parliament in the chest, Ruth Ellen Brousseau. Mr. Fergus got to his feet very quickly and defended the prime minister and actually accused that NDP member of parliament of, of, of exaggerating the injuries. Um, he's, uh, he, he, he's been caught up in his own uh, uh, ethics issues, and uh, he was helping, the, helping the, the government actively uh, defend the prime minister scandals very recently. So he came into the speaker's role with that very, very partisan history in, in the very near past and so that would have required an even higher uh, attention to detail to avoid any semblance of partisanship and, and, and that's why this is really such a serious uh, a serious situation that the house is now in. Yeah and, and I, I, I should note the fact that you yourself trying to get to a vote which is why you keep hearing the, the bells ringing behind you but very quickly though Mr. Shear because you, you, you do want Mr. Fergus to resign what avenue can be pursued to, to make that happen? Well, we've proposed a motion that uh, if the Speaker grants it, 
uh, would have the, the House send the matter to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee. Uh, that way the, the committee can get to the bottom and it can look at the speaker's statements and, and evaluate uh, uh, the, the statements itself and, and try to get to the bottom of what actually happened and then can recommend a, a course of action to the House. So uh, our position going into that, if, if, if that does pan out, if, if there are actually some committee meetings on this will be that uh, that the speaker should resign and we'll we'll make that case to other members of parliament andrew shear always appreciate the time thank you for this tonight thank you very much well canada's spy agency is now investigating allegations of rape and sexual assault looking into its british columbia office after a group of whistleblowers spoke to the canadian press they were complaining about a senior officer and one accused him of raping her nine times in a CSIS surveillance vehicle and for some reaction, we're now reaching out to Huda Muckbill. She is a former CSIS intelligence officer who a few years ago sued the federal government over alleged racism, sexism, and harassment in the force. She also wrote about it in her recently released book, Agent of Change, My Life Fighting Terrorists, Spies, and Institutional Racism. Ms. Muckbill, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now, the allegations being raised in this investigation are, are, are really just shocking. Uh, you were involved in a lawsuit and won. Do the allegations come as any surprise to you? It, it doesn't come as a surprise. Um, unfortunately, as the director himself has stated, um, there's been and continues to be, apparently, a culture that is really toxic um, for women and minorities at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Um, and, and it is really unfortunate. Um, and, you know, these allegations of sexual assault are quite serious. I'm glad that the prime minister has commented on it, raising um, the issue you know, to, to a level that it needs to be raised because these women work in national security, protecting their countries in, in really sensitive environments. So I feel for them. Mm -hmm. And you say you're not surprised. What is it, do you think, about the culture of CSIS that allows this type of activity to continue? Well, CSIS, much like the RCMP, much like DND and other national security organizations, the way that it was structured. So it's hyper masculine, there is hierarchy, um, there is uh, group thinking, um, and minorities and women have not held power within these organizations. And so um, the so they tend to um there there tends to be a lot of abuse towards these communities within these institutions it's it's a structure it's the culture um and unfortunately because the issue has not been taken seriously much like other departments um and they've not tackled it in a serious way it continues to happen now the the, the cp investigation into this they they say that concerns had been raised you you say so yourself as well nothing had been done about the agent who allegedly uh, raped and sexually harassed these female agents i'm wondering given that there was no reaction to to those concerns being raised would you compare actually, that to can i correct sorry, you yes, actually there was a reaction i'm sorry oh, there was yes, a reaction okay. so yeah, so what CSIS is now conducting a climate assessment of the Vancouver office. So this, um, the two ladies are from the physical surveillance unit uh, in British Columbia. And so there is a climate assessment that's being conducted. And the individual um, that is uh, the perpetrator has been um, taken out of the workplace. Uh, so the, these are two measures that the organization has taken now, but it needed, you know, the issue, the issue had to go public for them to take action. So mm -hmm. that's problematic. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's also really problematic that they are, um, you know, the courts, uh, what the court said is that they lack jurisdiction. They want the uh, the women to go through the internal processes. Um, the, the ladies are arguing that the grievance processes don't work. And I, I um, that, that was my experience as well, that the system itself doesn't work. Much like the RCMP, D&D, they can't be policing themselves. There needs to be that outside intervention. There needs to be, you know, a review agencies, both... Um, uh, and a psychop did, uh, uh, this is a National Security Committee of Parliamentarians, did a study on diversity, violence in the workplace uh, in 2020, and there needs to be uh, a review and further work, but it can't be left to the agency. Um, it ne there needs to be that outside intervention. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, what I was referring to was before when public uh, there was complaints that com uh, concerns had been raised and nothing had been done. But you, you say it needs to go to a third third party. What would that look like? You you gave a bit of an indication, but concretely, what do you think this actually has to be? Well, first of all, I I, I don't think CSIS should be fighting these women in court. Um, and these are public <laughs> public funds uh, that are being used in in a situation where they've already admitted that the processes um, in, in place have not protected people and that there is that toxic work culture. Um, and so they need to um, they need to make sure that they're not appealing those and fighting with with the women that have come forward, which I consider really brave to break ranks and to come forward and and really risk their careers, their financial security, their um, uh, just personal security as well, because these are people who are doing some dangerous work, following you know targets of the service, people of interest, um, and so. They need to support these women. That's that's the number one thing, but also to make sure that this doesn't happen to other uh, to other people who are vulnerable within these types of institutions. Um, a lot can be done. These outside uh, uh, review bodies can, um, you know, when they conducted the assessments in 2020, they didn't interview anybody that's gone through these processes. Um, they simply looked at documents that these institutions provided and, and provided an assessment. So there needs to be that um, involvement of people who really know what these uh, what these issues are people who have lived experiences such as myself with um, with these uh, with these issues and concerns that are um, that are so problematic within uh, CSIS as well as other national security organizations. And now, as you say, uh, the, the women who, who raise this are, are doing so, risking their own careers, uh, going through their, their own challenges of stepping forward to, to, to say this has happened. I'm wondering if you, you might share, because as, as we said right off top, the, you yourself called out the force for racism, sexism, harassment. What did that do to you? Um, it was um, it was a very difficult difficult thing to do. I uh, worked for CSIS for fifteen years, and um, you know, completely dedicated myself and and the other four that came forward. Um, we we tried inside to implement these changes. We found uh, the resistance, and 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 we had to as well uh, risk you know our our careers, our financial stability. Um, our families were affected. Um, there's mental health considerations. It's 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 a very difficult thing to go through this alone, and not to feel that the organization that you signed up for, that if you've been working for, is not supportive. 
um, of, uh, of the complaints um, that you're bringing forward. So really difficult, uh, really difficult time for them. And so the quicker that closure comes to, to, to this particular case, the better. Are you hopeful in any way that real change will come about because of this? I think it's a working progress, uh, but we need to make sure that there is that outside intervention, that there is transparency, that there is accountability, and that we're constantly uh, looking at, uh, at at making further changes. And so it's not going to happen on its own, um, and the organization itself can't be trusted to do it. Uh, they can't be policing themselves. We, we know this from D&D. We know this from the RCMP. CSIS is no different. In fact, I think it's really important to um, really tackle this at CSIS, given the fact that it's such a secretive organization. And there's a real risk when people come forward and report these things um, to the media or, um, or seek outside support. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, the prime minister uh, commented and said that there is going to be uh, you know, they're going to be closely monitoring and following up on this. And uh, I hope that they do do that. Uh, and uh, I hope that um, these other agencies are uh, provided with a mandate to investigate what is really going on and really speak not just to management, but to the individuals, um, to, to people that are working there that have those kind of lived experiences. Huda Makbil, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you. And that is Primetime Politics for this Monday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night, but up next, Estébégin avec l'Essentiel.